Read along with me, if you would, please. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know your willingness about which I boast to you, to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, so that it may be ready as a matter of generosity, not as a grudging obligation. But this I say, that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, so that each one gives as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency. So let's try that again, starting in verse 8. Cut, take two. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for all or every good work. As it is written, thank you, he has dispersed, this is Psalm 112, verse 9, he has dispersed the broad and has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints but also was abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While Though, sorry, through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ. And for all your liberality, or liberal sharing with them and all men, and by their prayer for you, who long for you, because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Pray with me if you would, please. Lord, we have uh, we thank you for a time, Lord, of just sort of being cleansed and in praise, Lord, as we just lift up our voices to you and let you just fill us afresh and anew, Lord, as we seek you and seek afresh to hand ourselves over to you, not our agendas, not our plans, but yours. And here we are now, Lord, uh, here seeking to be taught in your word, prepared and and readied, equipped, Lord, for what you've called us to. So minister to us in this time, Lord. Let our hearts and minds be ready and available, willing, Lord, for the leading that you call us to. So have your way, Lord, I pray. And thank you for the wonderful and magnificent pleasure of being able to say yes to you another day. Lord, have your way now, we pray. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of this time. And now, Lord, we commit it to you every second of it. Speak to us personally, we pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. 
Chapters 8 and 9 really kind of walk in conjunction with each other. We've kind of seen that. Now, I want to remind you, the epistles, all of the epistles were written to Christians. So the expectations and the standards that were laid upon the people that were receiving this were never laid upon unbelievers. It was never like you expected a person who didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ to ever jump to the aid of an ailing church in another community. But our context, again, for all of this, really stems back again to the book of Acts. In chapter 11 of the book of Acts, and again, this is for the sake of reminder, there was a man named Agabus, the show-and-tell prophet. He shows up at least twice in the book of Acts, and in both times he sort of shows, not just tells, but shows. And in this case, he shows by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the earth, or all the world, which also happened then, of course, during the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, the immediate response from that in our next verse tells us then, this is verse 29 of chapter 11, all the disciples, or the disciples, each according to their ability, determined to send relief to the brethren that were dwelling in Judea. And this they did, and they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Well, this famine really was a pretty tenuous, stubborn famine. It's important to note that among the great graces that God bestows upon the nation Israel, with those, by the way, are some challenges in regards to the area of disobedience. One of them is in the area of drought and famine. God will make very clear in the book of Deuteronomy that the prosperity of the land of Israel will be directly related to the obedience of its people. And not its obedience of all the people, but the obedience of the people who claim themselves as children of the living God. It's important to note that God never holds a nation liable by its secular government, but rather by its church holiness. We are supposed to be the influencers, not the influenced. And in a situation like this, we see, we believe this prophet, obviously, because we come up with an immediate plan of action. There's a, there's a famine that's going to be coming as a result of that famine. We need to go and help them out right away. And so that's what we do. So we all go and we say, all right, here's the deal. Let's go. And you guys, go ahead. And we're going to take a, a collection. And then with that collection, we're going to hand it off then to the people in Jerusalem. To the elders, notice, by the way, not just to general masses of people. We didn't give it to the Red Cross. Uh, we didn't give it to the Magad David, the Star of David. We didn't give it to any sort of relief organization. We didn't hand it to UNICEF or World Vision or any of that. We actually made sure that the church was sponsored so the church could be then the portal for relief for the community. And so through that, then we'll have the same thing. We'll see that sort of borne out in Romans 15. And even in the last letter that Paul had written here in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, when he says in verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches in Galatia, that's the middle of Turkey, so you must also do. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing, by the way, it up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Now, Paul wasn't doing this because, and this wasn't Paul sort of, in essence, inaugurating a passing of the hat among churches. What this was, was a specific thing not to sponsor their local church. That was already assumed. I remind you, the churches, for the most part, were birthed out of Jewish people. And they already knew the responsibility of those that were serving in the Levitical priesthood and the responsibility of the Jewish people to sponsor them. 
So I want you to recognize this was above and beyond what people normally gave. I mean, the churches were already being cared for. And as a result of that now, he's looking, he's saying, there's a famine, there's a real need somewhere else out in the world. Make sure this house is being taken care of. And because this house is being taken care of, well, then let's do something about it. And so what he says is, look it, I don't want to come here. I'm going to be dropping by him and Silas. It seems like in this case, what we'll see is that they'll be picking up this sort of collection to help with the church in Judea. And so with that, he goes, look, at, I don't want to have some kind of crazy appeal. I'm not going to do a telethon. I'm not going to do one of those things where we're going to lock the door and until we get this certain amount of money, you're not leaving. That kind of stuff's nonsense. And this chapter that we're, we're about to look at here is so cleansing when it comes to giving because it really does put things into perspective. What he says is, look, at you guys set this stuff aside so that when we come, it's already ready and we kind of scoop it up so nobody gets to blow their trumpets. Nobody gets to look like the big winner here. No one looks like someone special. You're never going to get a pew with your name on the back of it or a special chair or if you give enough, you get to sit up on the front somewhere. That kind of stuff makes me mental. He says, I want this to be a private thing where you guys set it aside so when we come, it's just not a big deal. It isn't like we're doing some kind of ceremony or conga line to this thing in the middle. This is just something so that it's between you and the Lord. You set it aside, you do it, and then we're going to come and scoop it up. And it says then in verse 3 of that's 1 Corinthians 16, And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, well, I will send to bear the gift to Jerusalem. And if it's fitting for me to go also, well, then I'll go too. In other words, Paul's like, I don't even have to go. This isn't about me. I just want to make sure this thing is being handled. And by the way, at this point, I remind you, Paul has no real allegiance to the church in Jerusalem other than his couple small experiences there. Paul wasn't birthed in the church in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. Paul wasn't raised in the church in Jerusalem. Paul tried to persecute and kill the church in Jerusalem. That's his history with these guys. His primary church, if you think about it, his sending church, interestingly enough, was never Jerusalem. His sending church was a church 200 miles north, 120 miles north, in the area of Syria, Antioch. So he's looking, I just would love to pick this up. Now, in chapter 7, or chapter 8, I remind you, the whole idea of it is there's two real key words. And the words, by the way, are willing and ready. Well, we usually use them in the opposite. The old adage, remember, and perhaps you've heard it, is like, oh yeah, you're ready and willing. But Scripture actually flips them around. What, what it said is, I want you to be willing and then ready. And to be honest, that makes a lot more sense. Because what are you ready for if you're not willing? It's like, if I'm ready, I'm really, really ready, and then I'll be willing. That doesn't make any sense at all if you think about it. But I want to start with this. The idea of giving, for the most part, was in chapter 8, and then in chapter 9 was really in the area of serving, which is really where the readiness comes in. In other words, we are constantly living in a state where we're willing to give and we're ready to serve. That's the idea here. So when we get to chapter 9, he's sort of pigtailing off of chapter 8. He says, now concerning the ministering. The word ministering, by the way, it's important to note, there are several words for minister. Perhaps you're aware of that. There are words in regards to hands-on service. There are words in regards to errand running. There are words in regards to meeting a specific need. Uh, this specific word here, by the way, diakonos, is the idea of running an errand, like a deacon. So in other words, in the area, now in regards to the area of like running things, going out and doing stuff for Christians, for believers, he goes, it's really superfluous for me to write to you. And then he goes, it really isn't the big issue because I, I can tell you guys are already doing that. This would be preaching to the choir to tell you guys, hey, you guys really need to do this because you guys are already doing this. 
Verse 2 says, because I know your willingness. And now he'll start moving off of the willingness and move to the readiness. About which I boast of you to the Macedonians that Achaia was ready a year ago. Notice in verse 2 it'll say you was ready. Verse 3 it says that you may be ready. Verse 4 it says that lest we find you unprepared. By the way, that's just the negative of that same word for ready. Verse 5 it says that it may be ready. Notice that that becomes a key thought through this. And i got to be honest with you. There is a huge margin and a big line in between a willing heart and a ready person. A person that says they're willing, and it's sort of like being a hero in your mind, but really being a damsel in distress in practice. You ever hear that guy's like, yeah, well, I would do this and I would handle that, and then they're put in the position and they need to be rescued because they really wouldn't do any of those things. They just thought they would. And understand, I remind you, in the last chapter, the fundament is this. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. That's the way it works. That's what willingness looks like. We're willing to hand ourselves to the Lord. We're willing in handing ourselves to the Lord. We're willing then to be be able to be used to serve others. But have you ever been in that situation where all of a sudden you stumbled into a ministry opportunity but you just weren't ready? Your mind was in the wrong place, your heart was in the wrong place, or circumstantially you were doing something that really predisposed you to not being ready to serve. That could be, just to be honest, a sin in our hearts. Bitterness or selfishness or pride or however that works, but whatever it is. It's one of the reasons, by the way, why we don't drink alcohol. Because it predisposes you not to be ready to certain people if the need arises. There's certain things you can do to trip out individuals. And I'm not saying that that's the blanket statement. I'm saying that in regards to the leadership here. And one of the reasons is we just want to be really careful that we're always ready if any way possible. Because you're probably aware of it, that most of the prolific ministry you do will never make it onto your diary before it actually happens. Have you noticed that? Some of Jesus' greatest ministry moments were always those moments en route. He's on his way to dealing with a girl who is very, very sick, Yaris' daughter. But there is another woman who, this girl, by the way, this little girl is 12 years old. She's a year younger, or year older, I'm sorry, than my daughter, my youngest. But there's another woman that 12 years ago has had a problem. And for 12 years, she's been bleeding. And she has been watching her life decay from her. And she is just convinced, if I could just reach out and touch the hem of his garment, it's zitzit that I'm sure that I'll be made well. And she does. And when she does, Jesus stops. And I wonder how many of us would have. He stops because he realizes somebody's trying to sneak away with a miracle and Jesus isn't going to let that happen. Jesus wants this woman to know this is so much more than just you're going to get something from God and walk away. It's not just a physical healing she needs. He wants her to know the power of her faith. And he wants to know that it's Jesus who is well aware of this healing and he's made the choice. She didn't connive God out of this healing. He willingly gave it to her. He was willing, but he was also ready. It was the leper as Jesus is heading down the hill from the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps you're familiar. Matthew 5-7. through And on his way down. It's one of those beautiful places, by the way, for the Greek. 
because the Greek is so ridiculously explicit that it makes me, it, it kind of makes me crazy to think of how people argue over things that all they have to do is read it in its language and actually it would, it would solve most of those arguments. But in essence, think of it this way. When you're talking about something that's a verb, something that's happening as an action, we could put it into two basic categories. We could look at it as a snapshot or we could look at it as the film being rolled. In one case, what will happen is it'll be a statement and we call it errorist. And what that means in the simple sense is it just, it simply happened. That's the point is it happened. You don't have to focus on how much it happened. It just happened. On the other side of it, you look at something where the focus then is on watching it happen. Do you see the difference? It says, Jesus went down the mountain. That's errorist. That's your snapshot. And people followed him. There's your second snapshot. So, and then, so here's the idea. So here's Jesus. He's walking down the mountain. Right? And here's everybody else trying to follow Jesus. And it says, and behold, a leper came and worshipped him. And God says, now roll film. And I love the way God set that up. It's like, look at this snapshot. Look at this snapshot. Now watch this. And what the man asked was something profound. He didn't say, if you're able, do you have the power? Do you remember what he asked? The variable was, if you were willing, you can make me clean. And God watches. It's sort of like, this is, watching Jesus walk down the mountain is not the point. Don't make a sermon out of that. Watching the people follow him, don't make a sermon out of that. But watch this. Are you willing? Are you willing to? And by the way, I love the fact that Jesus answers the question before he opens his mouth. This man who Luke tells us was covered in leprosy, which means he may have been a leper as long as 20 years, may not have had hands or feet, may not have had eyes to see, would have been completely white with leprosy according to Luke's account. And I remind you, he's a doctor who hasn't felt anything upon his skin for at least 13 years, if that be the case. And yet what we read is that Jesus reaches out and touches him before he speaks. This man would have to pull in his cloak and you couldn't get near three meters of him would have to yell unclean in any place where people would be. And you couldn't be near enough to be in a wind's blow from him. Feels the first thing he feels is the hand of God upon him. And then Jesus saying, I am willing. Be clean up. But there's more than Jesus just being willing. He had to be ready. When you think about Jesus going up the mountain with three of his disciples, you remember the story, perhaps, Matthew 17. And as he goes up the mountain, Jesus has a board meeting with, with Moses and Elijah. As he comes down, that means the other nine of them are down there, apparently, and they are down there trying to cast the demon out of a boy, and none of them can. Jesus' response, Oh, faithless and perverse generation. My question to you is, who is he speaking to? The possessed boy? The father? The father brought the guy, brought the son in faith to be healed. Could it have been his disciples? Faithless and perverse? And then Jesus says the one thing we need to hear over and over again, bring him to me. As the boy is being brought, perhaps you're familiar with the story, he starts to roll over and foam and it just gets into one of those profound Hollywood moments. Finally, Jesus says, you're out of here. There was no great battle. Once Jesus commanded, it was done. 
It wasn't like Jesus was flipping through a book trying to find his holy water and starting to figure out how to speak in Latin. Jesus' command was enough. It'll always be enough. His word is always enough. And of course, his disciples privately pulled him aside and wouldn't you privately because you don't want to be shunned or humbled any more than you already have been that day. How come we couldn't cast this out? What amazes me is where the church can go with the next statement. Jesus says, well, this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. And we go, oh, that's a prayer and fasting cast out spirit. So we have this special category now. Oh, we can't cast them out. We need to fast and pray and maybe then. That's one of those only comes out through prayer and fasting. I remind you, Jesus called them faithless and perverse. Do you know what the fasting and prayer did? Help them to have faith and not be perverse. Jesus was ready. And for the crew that he had, I understand why Jesus went to bed after everybody else and got up before everybody else to pray, to get ready. Which one of you would like to take on a Peter or a John and a James that want to call fire down on places where they don't let you through? Which one of you would want to take on a zealot? Do you know what that is? That's a guy who likes to, that wants to destroy the government. And then also take on a tax collector. Which one of you would want to be able to be ready at every given moment knowing that any time a religious leader who are the wealthiest guys at the time are going to invite you over, that it's probably not going to be for something you're going to want to do. And Jesus lived in a state to be ready and to be willing. And it all boils down in the willing to one big statement that he will make over and over. He'll teach us to pray and then himself will demonstrate in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. That's where the real willing comes in. The readiness. Well, that comes with the expectation that God really is going to do something amazing through every one of us. Not just me, not just you, but every one of us. Could any of them have imagined what God was going to do with them when he finally just said yes, when he said, follow me. So understand, this is a real practical point because what Paul is saying here is, look, and I knew your willingness. And notice, by the way, a couple of really cool things in this. In verse 2, it says, I know your willingness about which I boast to you, to the Macedonians. I remind you, the Macedonians are the upper lip. (coughs) Excuse me. That's Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, two of which, of course, we have letters to. And there's, of Greece, there's sort of two parts to it. That's the handle of the pot, and then there's the part that goes down. And that, by the way, is primarily known for Athens and Corinth. Interesting, because when he says Achaia, that must mean that there's more churches than just the one in Corinth. And what he says is, notice, I boast to you of the Macedonians. Let's put it this way. Let's look at the UK. Let's just say that we'll look at the island here. So there's Scotland, and then there's England. Scotland would be Macedonia then, and Achaia would be England. And he goes, man, I've been bragging to Scotland about you guys. You're both the United Kingdom. But he says, look it, I boasted to you about those guys in the north that Achaia was ready a year ago. Not just you guys, and listen to this, because your zeal has stirred up the majority. Do you know what that means? Hey, genuine excitement for God can be contagious. Have you noticed that? 
I mean, there are a lot of other things that are contagious. The grumps, the nastiness, gossip, selfishness, insecurity, all of those things become horribly contagious. And one person thinking they got shunned turns into a whole nunnery of shunnery. But when it comes down to it, he says, look, there are other things that can be contagious that are good. And here's one of them. Your zeal for what? For being willing and ready infected other people with the same. So that they were. Hey, if we are so comfortable on our spiritual couches that when someone says, I I really need your hand and inside we're rolling our eyes even if we've trained ourselves not to do it on the outside, we are not living in this state that that God's called us to. He goes, man, you guys, I brag about you because you are excitement to do what God's called us. In this case, I remind you, you begged. He goes, you guys weren't even wealthy. You guys weren't even in a financial position, but you said, please take this gift. So, here's the deal. I'm going to send some guys ahead of time so that when we show up there, this thing isn't awkward. Aren't you thankful that Paul would do that? So, they're going to go make sure you guys are ready so that when we get there, you're not unready. Because I thought it necessary to exhort the brothers ahead of time to go so that you'll have this whole thing ready. And this is what he says then in verse 6. Hinging off of that, at the end of verse 5, it says that you may be ready as a matter of generosity, not as a matter of grudging op- obligation. And he gives us then this standard. And might I say, I'm going to give you four really quick things on sowing. Because he says here in verse 6, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And, and of course, people will use this verse often in the area of giving. And, and, and by the way, I can't tell you that that's out of context. It is in context. The issue is what it is you anticipate you will reap is really the issue. If you really think that what God is, is in essence a fail-safe lotto, well, then you are not giving for the right reasons either. And there are people that I know that you hear these stories that someone kind of pitched their pitch to them and they're like, well, if I just sow this seed of a thousand pounds, I'm going to wind up then with a hundred thousand pounds. That's going to be the harvest. If you really think that sowing money is going to get you money, I think you kind of get something really weird out of that. And people are going, well, that's not fair. I didn't get what God promised. Actually, you may have gotten what God promised. You just didn't get what that guy promised. So let me give you four things that you just might want to consider, and these are right out of, out of text. The first of them, by the way, is you will reap what you sow. Matthew 7, 16 and Galatians 6, 7 through 9 will make that clear. You can't gather grapes from thorn bushes. You can't gather figs from thistles. A good tree is going to bear good fruit. A bad tree is going to bear bad fruit. In Galatians 6, 7, it says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Listen, he's either going to sow to one or the other. He's going to reap to sow to the flesh, or he's going to sow to the Spirit. If he sows to the flesh, he's going to reap corruption. If he sows to the Spirit, he's going to reap eternal life, or everlasting life. Now, that's what the harvest is. But if people were the most important thing, wouldn't everlasting life be the greatest harvest? Would you trade in a hundred grand for a human salvation? I certainly would, especially if it's someone I knew. You couldn't put a price on eternity like that. Because Jesus died for that soul. So that told me, and all the money in the universe doesn't pay for Jesus. 
in every moment in our lives, we're sowing somewhere. And that's, I'll be honest, that's frightening. So I start to think, why is my, the garden of my life so messed up? Because I sow so much rubbish in it. And then I sow a little bit of good and I want to see this bountiful harvest in one and none of the other. But the problem is I've been planting weeds longer in many cases than I have the good word of God. The second, not only you reap what you sow, is that God has an appointed time for harvest. It's his time. Galatians 6, 9, and many of you are familiar with it, same context that that says then, and let us not grow weary whilst doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Jesus, remember, said to his brothers, Hey, your time's always right. My time hasn't come yet. God has an appointed time for harvest. I'd like it now. I'd love to see all of London get saved tonight. But if that was the case, which one of us would be sleeping? And what exactly would have to take place for some of the people to say yes? Third, by the way, and this is perhaps the most frightening, comes from John 12:24, and that death is essential for fruitfulness. Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. We would love the fruitfulness, but we don't want to die to ourselves. And God's like, I have someone so much better. And I realized that when I look at a seed, something profound hit me. This was several years ago. I looked at this acorn. I was holding it in my hand for a second. And I remember asking, do you know what this is? Some would say a nut. Sure. It's a nut. It's a seed. Yes, it's a seed. But you know what it really is? It is a forest in training. It's a whole forest kit. This nut just has to be planted in the right place. When it's planted in the right place, given the right, you know, the right environment, it will grow in its death to produce a tree that will produce a whole lot more nuts, just like this one. And when those nuts are properly planted and die, they will produce a whole bunch of more trees that will produce a whole bunch more nuts. So in this one nut is a forest in the making is a harvest in the making. And it tells us in Psalm 92, he who was planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of our God. Do you know how a nut doesn't bear forth fruit? It isn't planted. It will not allow itself to be buried. It will not allow itself to die. And you, well, you're just a nut, just like me. And properly planted, as his spirit puts to death who we were and raises up someone infinitely greater. There was a harvest in the making inside of every one of us. He designed the DNA that way. And understand when the right death comes, a harvest is soon to follow. Well, that's our third of our four things. Here's the other one, by the way, for what it's worth. It tells us as well in Hosea chapter 8, verse 7, and in Matthew 13, 23. In Hosea 8, 7, it says, They sow to the wind, but they will reap, that, therefore, the whirlwind. 
In Matthew 13, 23, it says, He who received the seed, and perhaps you know the story, the parable of the sower and the soils, it tells us pour forth fruit, 30, 60, and even 100-fold. In this case, he goes in the opposite order, 160 and 30-fold. And that is that the fruit will always be more than the seed that was planted. If you want to reap, sow the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. If you're going to sow the seed, it will gather forth a greater harvest than that. which It will always bear forth more. The question is, how tethered to eternal life are we in the first place to want to see that harvest? If we're tethered to earth, what we'll want is earthly payback. But if what we really want is that of eternity, then we would rather have it paid forward than now. Does that make sense? Think of it as a spiritual annuity. And Jesus tells us, to not try to store our treasures here on earth, but they're in heaven. Here they could be stolen, they can corrupt, they can fade and rust. Moths can eat it. There they can never fade nor, st- nor be stolen. You want to gather gold? Congratulations, you're gathering pavement according to what we read about heaven. Isn't it true? So hear me on this. In verse 7 is the whole crux of it. The three things that are fundamental in any form of giving. And notice how freeing they are. The first is, as he purposes in his heart. Nobody else should be able to tell you, other than God, what it is that you should give, when and how. If you have something, have you ever done this where all of a sudden you have something, it's like, I have a number, I have a thing, this is what I know I need to do today, I don't even know where or how, but this is the thing. Well, then if the Lord's made that clear to you, then then make sure that, that that gets done. Give as he purposes in his heart. Second, by the way, it tells us, not grudgingly, which tells us that don't be a grumpy giver. God's never going to be blessed by that. And by the way, can I just say, scorekeeping is still hinging on grumpy. You're aware of that, right? When you're like, look at all that I'm doing. And then there's my favorite, the third, or of necessity. You never give because you have to. Because it says that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful, by the way, in the Greek is the word hilarious. You can kind of guess what word we get from that. Have you ever given in such a way that it actually is hilarious? It was just such a great thing that you're even giggling because you just get to give. Have you ever seen in God's economy two people could give and they actually both get more for it when they do? Only God can make something like that happen. Now look at, can I say, in regards to giving, three areas of just to, to think about. Time, talents, and tuppence. Am I willing and ready with my time? Am I willing and ready with my talents, the gifts God's given me? Am I willing and, and, and ready with my tuppence, the resources God has given me? So the rest of the chapter, really, in essence, then, is, is Paul telling us, stop freaking out about it, because don't worry about it, God's got you covered anyways. In fact, verse 8, if we really think about it, should be such a powerful verse. We should be able to hinge on it in such a way that we should not keep a tight rein on anything we have. It says, God is able to make all grace. And remember, grace is a gift. The word able, by the way, for what's with it, was the idea of efficient. God is efficient. He fully knows how to make all gifts abound toward you so that you will have all sufficiency. The word for sufficiency is self-satisfaction, by the way. 
Atarkaya, atos like me or a person, and takaya in regards to that of being satisfied or complete. And then you have the word for abundance. That you would have abundance. Notice that you wouldn't have abundance for your shopping list. Do you notice that's not what it says in verse 8? That you would have abundance for your will patterns, but rather you would have abundance for every good work. Perasio. Super, literally super abound, like it's a superhero of giving. So listen. Do you know why you can give anything as God leads you to? Because God is responsible to give you all grace for all sufficiency in all things for all good works. That's the way that works. Let me say that again. God is responsible to give you all grace for all sufficiency in all things for all good works. By Him. And because of that, you get the privilege then of being able to be used by God to bless somebody. I remember when back, back in California, Chante went through this season where she gave away almost all of her toys. She just loved meeting people and giving them her toys. And I remember going, honey, you know, like, I wasn't concerned about it other than the fact that I was like, okay, so tell me the, the thinking behind this. What is compelling you to do this? She goes, oh, it doesn't matter to me. You're just going to replace them anyways. And I remember being so touched by that because I realized she was she just so knew that she would never be without toys that she could freely, oh, you like that? Go ahead and have it. And it was, there was a, t- a season where it almost seemed strange for some girl to show up at her house and not leave with something. I'm just really thankful she wasn't pointing at my guitars or something. But what if we were like that? I mean, what thing would, would we, could we give away God would not replace if he didn't want us to have it? No, no, I'm not saying like go out and go find some homeless guy and then go ahead and give them money for crack. What I'm saying is when it's especially first and foremost, and notice the context again, was a brother or sister in need. That's where it happens. And all of a sudden you're like, you know what, they need this more than I do. Man, just go for it. And he quotes then from Psalm 112.9. Where the idea is that he's happy to give because God just... You want to see a cheerful giver? Watch God. He delights in blessing his children. So it closes up with this. Now he, now may he, or it all depends on your translation, but the idea is he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, that he will supply and multiply then the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Did you notice that the fruit was not financial, but the fruit was of your righteousness? So listen, can I just dare say this? And this is, and you've got to know this is one of the two areas that's the hardest for me to teach on. But when it's in Scripture, I have to teach on it. Here's the good news. If you've only come the last couple of weeks, come next week and you'll see it's different. Come the week after that, you'll see it's different. Because it isn't addressed every week in text. It just happens to be twice in here because there was a need in Judea. And so Paul wants to make sure it's handled correctly. Does that make sense? But please hear me. The Lord does call every, every Christian to give. What do you give to? My suggestion is find something fruitful and invest in it. Find something that is genuinely tethered to eternity, where Jesus is the center of it, so you know you're not giving just to a person or an organization. Hey, do your homework. Find out where the money goes. Do your homework and see what the mission is and what it really looks like and how it's practically lived out. That's only wise. But when you actually talk, and I remember it was interesting, there was a Christian comedian 
who had traveled around the world, and he, and he, and he started some of his, his comedy act by asking a couple questions. And one of the questions he asked was, how many of you have given to a charity, including your own church? Of them, he says, comfortably less than 5% of the crowd raised their hand. And he says, well, let me ask you something else. He says, how many of you in here have actually tossed a coin in a wishing well? He says, half the crowd would. He goes, on average, half the crowd. He goes, don't you find that interesting? You threw a coin in a wishing well, knowing you probably weren't going to get your wish. Hate to, you know, pop your bubble on that. But wouldn't give to something you thought was really worth, was it because you didn't think it was worthwhile? You thought it really didn't make a difference. Scripturally, by the way, it tells us that a person who preaches the gospel is supposed to live by it. Are you aware of that? Could you imagine what would happen if the Lord were to raise up ten evangelists in this fellowship that if you knew you gave them the free time, what they would do every moment of their waking day, if they were able, was preach the gospel to someone? Would you sponsor an individual like that if that were the case? Could you imagine? The scary thing is how even words like evangelism don't have as much meaning anymore or words like mission don't have that much meaning anymore. I know people that give a third of their entire budget to missions, but you'd be amazed at what that actually means. And here's the point of it. Is that if people who had more just surrendered it for the purpose of those who might need it, whatever that person or group or institution is doing in the name of Christ and the fruit that it bears is also ascribed to yourself as well. That's the point of it. And whether that is, by the way, building something or whether that is fixing something or whether that is giving decent counsel where it's necessary and not when it's not. I mean, whatever it is. Let me give you an idea. In the book of Acts, this is kind of how it played out by those last, by the chapters of, by the way, we're looking at the end of chapter 2 through chapters 3 through 5. Let's just put it this way. Let's say that it started with this, that Sam gave his life to the Lord. And when Sam gave his life to the Lord, his family, the town bombs, uh, were very upset and kicked him out of the house. He had no place to live. Just, you know, classic story, by the way, in a place like Jerusalem. On the other side of it, Lucas on the other side of that, Lucas gives his life to the Lord, and as he gives his life to the Lord, he also gets kicked out by his family. There's two guys that are homeless. Dominic, on the other hand, gives his life to the Lord, and his whole family says, I'm not going to get near this. Do you realize how we'll get beat up at school for believing in Jesus? We're out of here, and Dominic's entire family leaves. He's heartbroken, praying for their return, and he's heartbroken. All of a sudden, the three of them bump into each other at a Starbucks. Which, by the way, they, they, a cafe Hillel, if we're in Israel, by the way. They don't have Starbucks. They, get, they would get... There was one and there was a bomb threat. They left. Anyways. So, and they're sitting there and, and, and Lucas is talking to Dominic. And Lucas, Lucas has been talking to Sam. And they're like, you know, I got kicked in my house. Oh, I got kicked in my house. And, and all of a sudden, Dominic starts getting, what are you guys talking about? I saw you guys praying. Well, yeah, we're praying because we both got kicked out of our house. Funny, everybody in my house left. I seem to have extra rooms. How'd you guys like a place to stay? I'm like, what? Are you serious? We were just praying that God would help us. Well, looks like I'm your help. He was ready and he was willing. He was willing and he was ready. Does that make sense? And these guys, by the way, were just casting their care before the Lord. So, all of a sudden they start to move and turns out, by the way, as all of this is happening, is that Sam is a real gifted plumber. You probably didn't know that. Actually, I'm making this up as I go along, but follow me on it. So if you really have plumbing needs, you might not want to run into Sam. You can ask him, maybe. Uh, I don't know. All right, so 
at this point, they're just really happy. And as they start, they start to invite other people over. There starts to be a church in Dominic's house, which would make sense because all these believers are there and they're just excited about and thankful for the fact that they have a warm roof over their, over their head at a time like this. Are you with me so far? So all of a sudden, they start walking by. As they start walking, you know, they're walking back from the neighborhood, you know. Uh, as they're walking back from the neighborhood, Sam, by the way, he can't work. Now, Luke, is, he can't work either because if they get kicked out of their houses, they're considered dead. And if they're considered anathema, who's going to hire him in the Jewish community? But all of a sudden, and as that's the case, Maureen, by the way, who's been cooking some beautiful, making some beautiful kosher cakes, has lost all of her employees because she gave her life to Christ. She looks at these guys and says, you know what, you guys, you really should come work for me. I will happily sponsor you in whatever way I can. Help me make some kosher cakes. Boom. All of a sudden, these guys have a job. Are you seeing how this is starting to work out? Now, they don't have a lot of money. They're just basically enough to help pay the bills, but that's okay. And they start walking by. And as they start walking by, they see Shirley, and she's outside of her house. And she's outside of her house right now in floaties. Water wings. And they're like, what in the world's going on? Shirley says, I really don't know. My house is full of water. And I'm like, well, that's really, really strange. Sam's like, well, you know what's really interesting is I actually am kind of pretty good at plumbing. I'm, you know, it's kind of up my alley. I'm gonna, why don't I take a look at it? So he puts on his snorkel gear and inside he goes into her house. As he pops into his house, he kind of comes out and he says, you know, your water main bust, but I think I can turn it off. I can start draining the thing, but you're still not going to have running water right now. You're going to need to replace these six parts. And she's like, well, that's terrible. And as they're starting to talk, Daniel goes walking by. And as Daniel walks by, Daniel in a situation like this, he says, you know what? What's really strange is is that I happen to have some extra money, but I did, and I was asking the Lord, could you imagine, I have extra money, Lord, what would you like me to do with it? Could you imagine saying that to him? I have extra money, Lord, what would you like me to do with it? And of course, I warn you when you say that, you just might run into someone like a Sam at that moment. And Sam at that moment says, funny, because I actually need some parts. For what? For plumbing. For where? For Shirley. <coughs> oh, she needs her house fixed. I think I can fix it, but I can't afford the parts. So then all of a sudden, what happens? Is Daniel says, well, why don't I take care of that? So he, they go to the store, he buys the parts, but he says, you know, I actually don't have enough money. But that's okay, because Martin works at the shop, he's given his life to the Lord, and as he goes to the shop, Martin says, I'll give you a discount, because I think we can sell you these things at cost. So all of a sudden, David, or Daniel's able to buy the parts at cost, he can afford it, he gives them to Sam, Sam then goes, and what does he do? Sam goes, and he goes and fixes her house. Shirley is so happy, she, does, she wants to do something to repay. The one thing is that the three of these guys, and I'm actually making you someone you're not, can't cook, so they've been up, they've been eating, you know, Jaffa cakes for the last two weeks since his wife left, and Shirley says, can I come and cook? As she starts to cook, they start to have these big meals. As they start to have these big meals, for which then Maureen, of course, is making the cakes. These guys have learned how to make the cakes with it. They start to invite the entire neighborhood. And everyone from the neighborhood gives their life to Jesus Christ. And we live happily ever after. Here's the question is, whose account do those souls go to? Every one of you. Who would have thought, a bunch of people got saved because I made a cake. A bunch of people got saved because I made a casserole. A bunch of people got saved because I sold some guys some plumbing parts at cost. A bunch of people got saved because I actually helped screw in somebody's pipe. A bunch of people got saved because I let somebody stay at my house. But when the body works together, the story is so interwoven that all of a sudden you realize, and this is the point, is that God loves to give people credit for serving. He loves to give people credit for being part of His kingdom. And He really will weave you into the story if you are willing and ready. Does that make sense? 
See, but that could have actually totally stopped the woman. He's like, no way, I just want to sob and get drunk in my house and drink some German beer and just get really sad because my family left. Which would be a natural temptation, perhaps. But while he is there, Lucas and Sam are encouraging him and actually getting him back into the Word so that he can actually get the strength to start just to wake up another day and, and learn to, to live it again. And here's the crazy part. Nobody gave beyond their means. But everyone gave. He had a house. Well, we can agree, that's pretty darn big. He had some pipes. But they both get credit for the same people because in the end of it all, the same people got reached. Do you see what I'm saying? But here's the thing. As all of that kind of played out, they gave us what they mattered in their hearts. This is, you know, it's like, and you know, and Daniel's like, well, you know, if it's going to cost me 25 pounds, well, then I can do it. That's what's in his heart. Now, we could have actually all gone into the same room and someone had said, I know you might be thinking 20, but I say you should stretch your faith to 25 and pull out your debit card for another 30. Notice it says you never give by requirement. May you never feel like you have to do anything other than give everything to Jesus and let him use it. And he's the one who can take care of it. But here's the funny part. is God has this habit of taking care of things, and we're aware of this, right? He has this habit of taking care of things in a way very different from ourselves. Because he likes to use more people, so we all can be a part of it. Do you see what I'm saying? So they start having these meals, and as they start having these meals, the next thing you know, Naomi breaks down into some breakdancing, and all of a sudden she starts a breakdancing ministry. Not hip-hop, just breakdancing, because she you know, breaks a lot of things when, you know, for a while. <clears throat> so, and that pulls in some of the street kids, and they start getting saved. But they couldn't have done it if she didn't have a place to do it. And she may not have even discovered that had she not even gotten healthy enough to eat the food that was made by Shirley in the house that was offered by Dominic, by the way, because she was so thankful because her house is actually in a better condition now because it's been fixed by three other guys. And it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And you hear these stories that so many people are involved in. How many times have you ever said, you know, then this thing happened and I don't even know the name of the guy. The guy that preached the gospel and the night I got saved, I wouldn't recognize him if he came up and kicked me. I mean, I hope he wouldn't. So he who supplies seed to the sower and bread to the... And by, let me remind you, it's God who gave you the seed in the first place to sell. It's God who turned it into bread for you. So imagine what happens when you hand God your stuff. It's all right, Lord, it's yours now. Do with it as you like. Well, may he increase that then in regards to the area of righteousness. You're enriched in everything. Everything you need, you have with all liberality. And by the way, here's the two end results of this as we close this up. Which causes thanksgiving through us to God for this administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. Here's the great part. In them offering this, and I'm back at Corinth now, it supplied the saints' needs. That seemed like pretty simple, right? But because it helped minister to these people that were in need in Judea, it caused a whole lot of other people around the world to be thankful. And it made people who didn't know the people in Judea or the people in Corinth to be thankful. Aren't you thankful when you see the body of Christ work right? Even if you didn't know a single soul, 
The moment I read the word church and it's in a newspaper, I get a uh-oh feeling. How about you? This church or this pastor or this minister is Oh no, I'm sure this is going to be really edifying. But every once in a while on a blue moon, you'll read a story about a church that did something right. Every once in a while you'll read about a group of Christians that did something right. And man, I, I wish we could get a newspaper that that's all it was. And it only came out when those stories were rose. And now they were out serving tea during a riot. Or they were out providing beds when people were in need. Man, God, make us such a church. That's what He intends. So that other people in the world go, do you hear about that London church, man? It just it gets me all excited. I remind you, this began with the idea that zeal was contagious. Well, may that zeal then abound in much thanksgiving. Because, man, your giving supplied the needs for saints. But it also caused many others as well to be thankful. So, through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God. In other words, here's the great part about it. If they didn't even know you gave it, but they knew that it was given, they'll give God the glory, and that's where it should go, right? For the obedience. And look at verse 13. Well, through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ. Because you believe that Jesus really died and rose again for you, you were glad to liberally share with them and with everyone who needed it. And by their prayers now for you who long for you because of this great gift or exceeding grace of God in you, everybody got blessed. You got blessed to give. Other people got blessed to hear about it. And some got blessed to get so they could have their supplies needed or their needs met. And in the end of it all, you know what he says? Thanks be to God because it was all his gift. You know what his gift was? You. His gift was you because you were there and you were willing and you were ready and you were the gift. Everything else was just what was administered through that gift. And that was God's great gift in this. His greatest gift, of course, would be that of his son who paid the price, who was always and is always willing. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast away. Come to me, you are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say, come to me on Sundays. Aren't you thankful? He never sleeps, he never slumbers, and even right now you could call out to him. Whoever and whenever you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. That's what God makes clear. As long as we seek him with our whole heart, we'll find him. As we go to prayer, beloved, just want to say this tonight, that the Lord would really love to stir hearts tonight so that we could be willing and then ready. I guarantee if you're willing, you're going to need to be ready because the Lord's going to use you. And never underestimate anything that you offer God, no matter what it is. It's never wasted if it seems like much. And it's never too little if you offer it to Him. And whether that is, you know, 200 denarii or 300 denarii worth of some form of ointment like spikenard that someone, someone else might say, what a waste. Or whether it's five loaves and two fish. Both, by the way, made their way into Scripture for us to look at and go, wow, that's zeal and I want to be a part of it. Pray with me, would you please? 
Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful text. And on this beautiful night here, we come to you and we just want to tell you, Lord, that that we may not necessarily have a lifestyle of being willing and ready. But we would like to. We'd love to be people so zealous for good works, so zealous to do what you call us to, that it becomes contagious. So, Lord, get our eyes off ourselves and get our eyes on you. And let us recognize, Lord, it's you who supplies everything we need. Your grace abounds for every good work, Lord. And so, Lord, may we be in one of those cases where we live in that state where we're quick to give because we know it's your job to replace. Not in folly, Lord, but quick to listen to you and not hold on to anything so tightly that we would say it's off limits to you who want to use it to change the world. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins and raising again that we could actually lay who we were at the cross and there die but be raised to a newness of life and be the new creation you ordained for which we would bear much fruit. So Lord, lead us into that which blesses you and thank you for the magnificent pleasure of saying yes to you another day. So Lord, have your way now we pray. And Lord, use us. In Jesus' name, amen.